my voice might give out tonight. Hopefully not. And we've got some really bad issues this month. So we uh, do. This is not a great month for Marvel Comics. I hate to uh, start every episode of the podcast with us going like, by the way, let's, we're going to tell you how much everything sucks today because <laughs> you don't want that. That's not a fun podcast. I There's no shortage of rewatch or re-listen or reread podcasts where I just, the negativity just gets me down. You know, I'm like, look, I'm listening to this because I like it. I wouldn't listen to this if I didn't like it. So I don't want to hear you harshing on it every week. I want to celebrate this. And I think that's why we started this podcast to celebrate these comics for the most part. But yes. knowing also as well that like, oh, it'll be fun to read all the Human Torch and Giant Man comics and have fun at their expense. But last <laughs> week we did the second half of May 1964, which happened to have a lot of weak books in it. This week we're doing the entirety of June 1964, which also had a lot of weak books. We're going to start strong and then everything else will just breeze through. Yes, I think that is a good plan. I think we need to do our official introduction though. Hi everybody, I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. As you said, we've got a, like maybe a couple of good issues and then a lot of stuff that was also published. Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm thinking that maybe you start out that way uh, you will get Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and uh, also you'll have four issues to talk about and I'll have three because dear listeners I have a sore throat right now and I have taken three negative COVID tests in the last four days and have no fever so I'm pretty sure it's not COVID. This is Steve from three days in the future and it turns out it was COVID. All right let's go ahead and start with Spider-Man number 13. This is the best issue we're going to read this month. This is The Amazing Spider-Man number 13. We've done it. We've created the greatest villain of all for old Spidey, Mysterio. Who or what is he? Now, there are people who aren't as crazy about Mysterio, but I love Mysterio. I love his look. I love his gimmick. My son really enjoyed when we watched Spider-Man Far From Home going like, oh, I want to tell Letty what Mysterio's gimmick is. You know, I want to tell her that it's all special effects, but I don't want to ruin it for her. And I don't know what to do because I really, you know, he was really just enjoying watching the movie and being able to, you know, know, oh, it's all special effects. I think it's fun to have this villain whose gimmick is that he's a special effects guy and this is all secretly special effects. We also have on the cover then, what's this? Spider-Man turning to crime? You're in for a real shock. And there's a little drawing of him robbing a safe. And then it says, ever see a comic mag superhero take his troubles to a psychiatrist? You will now. And there's a picture of a psychiatrist pointing to the couch, the psychiatrist's couch. We begin with something that has happened before. Spider-Man seemingly having gone bad, doing a life of crime, robbing a place, swinging away. Uh, We have had this happen at least twice so far. I think both the chameleon and Electro imitated Spider-Man. Spider-Man then gets away on a little web parachute, and it looks gorgeous going over the night sky. Uh, Yes. City skylines at night, always Steve Ditko's greatest chance to shine, and he does his normal, wonderful work here. The next day, everybody is talking about how Spider-Man has finally gone bad, and it's finally proved, and uh, J. Jonah Jameson is, of course, ecstatic about this. Betty is like, but I remember Spider-Man wouldn't save my life. So then the kids, <laughs> I gotta say, Liz Allen is such an interesting character. Liz Allen here totally turns on Spider-Man, just absolutely, completely. She says, when I think how we made a hero of him, what fools we were. But then Flash is shown as being someone who has the courage of his convictions. Flash says, gee, I don't know, Liz, we can't be positive. He may still be innocent. Someone says, knock it off, Flash. He's guilty and you know it. 
Well, then we turned out there, there's someone else who has turned on Spider-Man and believes Spider-Man must have committed these crimes. And that is Peter Parker. Peter Parker is sitting by himself in class and he's going like, well, you know, the newspaper says I committed these crimes. The Daily Bugle would never lie. So what's <laughs> going on if I'm committing these crimes? I know what it is. I must have a split personality. There is a great panel of him lying awake in bed. He can't help thinking about it. And it looks exactly like he's a character in a Matt Groening comic strip. It looks like he's a character in Matt Groening's Life in Hell who would always have just their eyeballs showing up in the black in their black room at night as they were thinking about something. And of course, we oh, have, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, there are, you know, the shadow of Venetian blinds being a cast across him as well, because Dicko loves that more than anything. So in the next day, Spider-Man decides, that's it. I'm going to a psychiatrist. And I saw you had shared this panel on Facebook. He says, yes. don't be alarmed, Doc. I just want to know one thing. Can a person do something in his sleep he never do when awake? And the psychiatrist thinks, Spider-Man, if I can make a patient out of him, I'll make medical history. Imagine a mysterious superhero who's a mental case. So then the psychiatrist <laughs> tries to get him to lie down on the couch. And Spider-Man is just about to lie down on the couch when it suddenly occurs to him like, okay, this makes no sense. Oh no, what a mistake I always made. If I just relax and say whatever I think of, I'm liable to give away my secret identity. I don't dare. And then he says, nope, I just changed my mind, Doc. I'm going to go try to solve this another way. And he takes off and the psychiatrist is heartbroken. Pete goes in to talk to J. Jonah Jameson to try to borrow money. Apparently, he has never met J. Jonah Jameson. And he sort of brushes off Betty as he goes in. And she says, lay off, will you, Betty? I'm in no mood to be preached to. And she's like, you, you never spoke to me that way before. J. Jonah Jameson, of course, refuses to lend him any money. He tries swinging around a Spider-Man on the streets, finds that everybody is trying to chase him down because they all think he's a criminal. So then we cut back to J.J.J., he is at his office when suddenly Mysterio shows up. So I had forgotten that this is similar to Spider-Man Far From Home, where Spider-Man Far From Home, Mysterio originally shows up in the guise of a superhero. And th yeah. that happens here too. Mysterio shows up. He's like, I'm a new superhero in town. I'm going to catch Spider-Man. He's a big villain. He, once again, this is all tied to the news cycle. And he posted a notice in the Daily Bugle saying, I want to fight Spider-Man. That's the second issue in a row. I guess that's happened. So I want to fight him on top of the Brooklyn Bridge. So then Spider-Man, of course, will later have a very famous encounter on top of a bridge. Here is his first time fighting on top of a bridge. I guess, does Gwen Stacy usually die on top of the Brooklyn Bridge? Uh, I, I think that it's one of those things where they said it was one bridge, but it was very clearly the other bridge. Yeah. Uh, I, and I forget whether they said it was the Brooklyn Bridge, but it was actually the Manhattan Bridge or the other way around, but it was something like that. So then Spider-Man faces Mysterio on top of the bridge. Mysterio is doing big flips. I don't think of him as a guy who necessarily does a lot of flipping around, but he is flipping around, literally kicking Spider-Man's ass, knocking him all around. He's using Spider-Man. He's dissolving Spider-Man's webbing. He's creating a bunch of smoke and then beating the crap out of Spider-Man while Spider-Man can't see through the smoke. I, I have to say, I love the way that Ditko renders the smoke clouds. Uh, yes. He has a lot of fun with that. And it looks characteristic. It doesn't look like, you know, any other smoke that you see Ditko render. It just looks like it's a special thing. Yes. A special effect, one might say. So then Spider-Man ends up going off the bridge. We have classic inconsequential confrontation. The rest of the confrontation gets put off for another day. Spider-Man has to get away. He is back home. There are Phoenician blinds in his room, letting us know that he is feeling muppy. Then, <laughs> I had totally forgotten this, Mysterio is given a ticker tape parade through town, standing up in the back of a convertible and waving to the crowd. Now, now one of the things that just occurred to me that I hadn't thought about this when I read it earlier Presumably, this was written and drawn shortly after Kennedy's assassination. Yes. And this feels eerily 
you know, <laughs> like that. I mean, certainly it was published after that. I do not know what the lead times were in those days for doing this stuff. So I don't know whether this was done beforehand and then it's later it's like, ooh, that's uncomfortable or whether they yeah. went ahead and did that anyway. I don't know. Apparently Kennedy was able to destroy America's wearing of hats by not wearing a hat at his inauguration, but he was not able to destroy America's love of riding around in the back of convertibles because even after he got killed, people were still doing it. JJJ, ecstatic with Mysterio, introduces Mysterio to his photographer, Peter Parker. Peter Parker puts a little spider tracer on him and says, I'm going to find out the real deal with Mysterio. And then once again, he is brusque to Betty. Betty is wondering if it is because she has seen him around with a certain blonde. I don't know if Betty would really be making out to Queens very often or if Liz would be making it into Manhattan very often, but somehow Betty has seen Liz. Spider-Man follows Mysterio back, and Mysterio, very unwisely, goes ahead and confesses all once he is confronted by Spider-Man, uh, not realizing that Spider-Man has a secret tape recorder. And Mysterio reveals, he does not reveal his real name here, he reveals that he is a special effects movie guy, and so he decided to Go ahead and does it say why he turned evil? Why does anyone turn evil in the Marvel universe? I mean, yes, there are some people who are turned evil by a specific thing. There are lots of folks who are just like, hey, I've got a lot of power. Should I use it for good? Nah, that's for suckers. On the bottom of page 15, where he begins his monologue, you know, my comment that I have here is, and then he started monologuing. But in this case, instead of that, just giving the hero time to pull victory from the jaws of defeat. In this case, yeah, Spider-Man's just like, yeah, I just recorded your whole confession. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Although I long for the days when, uh, when you know, we could be so naive as to think that, oh, well, I have an audio tape of his confession. <laughs> Surely that means that he'll be convicted. <laughs> yes. I'm reading that now and I'm like, oh, oh, you, you sweet summer child. <laughs> yes. So then Spider-Man says, I recorded it all. And he's like, okay, well, then I'll just kill you. And they get a fight. And I guess the idea that, that Mysterio's headquarters were in his old movie studio and Spider-Man knocks Mysterio out and he goes sprawling onto a movie set where they're shooting a science fiction movie against the space backdrop. And they get in a huge fight interacting with all the props on the movie set. And it is gorgeous. Dicko, yeah. his favorite thing to do, you get the feeling, is to go like, okay, new issue is Spider-Man having a fight. Where is the fight? Now, this is not something that Jack Kirby is necessarily doing. This is not something that certainly John Heck is necessarily doing. That what is in the background of Wall, the Thing, and the Hulk are punching each other is not as important to Jack Kirby. But where they are is hugely important to Steve Dicko. And Steve Dicko is like, oh, how much fun can I have with the set this time? In this case, it's literally a set. In this case, it's a movie set. I can have a lot of fun with that. And he does. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I said, I think in the previous episode or maybe two episodes ago, you know, just in this going back and reading this stuff again, that is what I'm really just struck by each one of these issues is just how much Ditko plays with those backgrounds and those, you know, unique set pieces that he's got. And not only is he able to use them just to have lots of beautiful in illustrations of interesting things in the background, but how does he use them to choreograph the fight scene? Um, and he's doing a lot of that here, you know, with, uh, you know, jumping up on the, uh, spaceship model and jumping down onto, you know, the, the, the planet type thing and bouncing around on all this stuff coming through the starry space backdrop. It, all of this isn't just 
hey, I want to draw a bunch of cool stuff in the background. He uses it, and it's yeah. fantastic. So then Spider-Man does eventually capture Mysterio. The director is furious at the cameraman for not shooting everything. He says, <laughs> you didn't come poop the greatest action scene in history, and you didn't even get it on film. And the cameraman says, but 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 they weren't members of the cast, probably didn't even belong to the union. Chief Jameson is just stopping by police headquarters like he does and finds out that they've arrested Mysterio and listened to Spider-Man's tape, and they realize Mysterio was the bad guy and Spider-Man was the good guy. There's a great drawing of J. Jonah Jameson coming back to the office looking totally mopey. Charlie Brown. He's totally Charlie Brown. <laughs> it, looks like, it looks like a Harvey Kurtzman drawing. It looks like Harvey Kurtzman drew depressed, uh, depressed J. Jonah Jameson there. And I, I don't know what Ditko's relationship was to Harvey Kurtzman. I don't know if they overlapped at all or they or if they ever came within each other's orbit so then but then he finds that peter has gotten lots of great photos of the fight and he is happy about that but <laughs> peter always happy to sell james and jameson photos but also happy to then show up as spider-man and humiliate him and <laughs> web him to the ceiling again and then flies away i'm a big fan of this issue it is just absolutely amazing that they have made eight spider-man live action feature films and in those eight movies, every villain has come from the first 14 issues of Amazing Spider-Man. These first 14 issues, ending with next issue when Green Goblin is introduced, became the intellectual property which has generated these $8 billion live-action movies, just based off this one extremely concentrated burst of creativity from Dick and Lee. And it is absolutely amazing. And... This was made into a great movie. I, I love Spider-Man Far From Home, and this is a great issue. I will point out that one could argue that Venom was one of the villains in the third Sam Raimi movie. So that is true. He was not introduced in these. But other than that, yes, you are absolutely correct. And that was probably the worst of all the movies, was the third Sam Raimi one, which is a shame because the second Sam Raimi one was possibly the best and maybe one, one of my favorite comic book movies of all time. But uh, yeah, that third one was garbage. I had totally forgotten about the existence of Topher Grace Venom. Yes, Topher Grace Venom does show up. He is like the third, he shows up at the very end of the movie as like the third most important villain in the film, but he does make a brief <laughs> hideous appearance in Spider-Man 3. So that is the only villain who has been in any of these first eight Spider-Man movies who did not appear in the first 14 issues of Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, which is really just a... <laughs> astounding track record <laughs> especially when you then see that in comparison to daredevil which we're going to be getting to next yes uh okay so this one's my turn this is a bit of a crush my soul kind of issue <laughs> yes in that i you know I, obviously i loved the first issue i just thought that it was just an out of nowhere smack in the face of wow this is different and it's really good and then you go straight from that to this among other things so you got joe orlando now joe orlando has respect in the industry and i'm sure that he's done good stuff but it's just not none of the stuff i've seen i really like very much the only things that i've seen of his that i really kind of like are the sea monkeys ad Yes. Oh, yeah, that uh, I know he did some EC work, including the story whose censorship by the Comics Code Authority made Bill Gaines just give up and say, I'm not going to publish comics anymore. And I've seen some excerpts from that issue, from that story, and that's good. But those are the only two things I've seen uh, of Joe Orlando's work that really clicked with me. The most acclaimed graphic novel of all time is Watchmen. And Watchmen 
is a love letter to a lot of people. Watchmen is, in a lot of ways, a love letter to Steve Ditko, and I feel like that is not yep. fully appreciated. But it's also yep. a love letter to Joe Orlando, because yep. throughout Watchmen, you have this pirate comic that this kid is reading, and it is very clearly drawn by Dave Gibbons in the style of Joe Orlando. They even say at one point, I think, in Watchmen that it is illustrated by Joe Orlando. So you have the most beloved comic book of all time, devotes a lot of time to talking about how wonderful Joe Orlando is. You would never guess it from reading Daredevil number two, because <laughs> the penciling does not impress, but we have the great tragedy. The great tragedy of Marvel Comics begins with this very issue, because we have the arrival of Vince Coletta. Yes, we do. Yes, we and, do. you know, I've talked about before when the Museum of Science and Industry had their Marvel Comics exhibit, it was wall-to-wall, rah-rah, isn't Marvel Comics wonderful? You know, this is a exhibit in a kid's museum. It was all about how wonderful Marvel Comics are, except for there was a whole wall about how terrible Vince Coletta was. And <laughs> there was endless amount, I mean, it was really intense, where they're like, let's look at all these panels that, here's the Kirby pencils, here's the Coletta inks. Look, kids, look at how terrible the Coletta inks are. So there is a general acknowledgement that even when celebrating Marvel Comics at its best, for little kids, you have to acknowledge how terrible Vince Coletta is. He is considered to be the worst anchor in Marvel Comics history. He is considered to be a stain on Marvel Comics themselves, period, according to this exhibit. <laughs> and this issue does not do anything to ease that reputation right from the cover, which is clearly inked by Coletta. Could be that these Orlando pencils were fantastic. And he's just being betrayed by Coletta. I suspect not. I suspect that the pencils still would have been bad without these inks. But who boy, are they bad with these inks? And to the extent that we assume that the pencilers had much more control over the plot than pencilers would in later decades, Orlando doesn't know what the heck to do with how Daredevil is going to do any of this stuff. <laughs> no. it's, it's not good. Well, one thing I will say is if you talk to old comics pros, like people who were younger than these than this generation of folks, but knew a lot of them professionally, you will hear some stories about Vince Coletta that I was sort of going back and forth on. Should I bring this up? Because it always comes up when some of the old pros start talking about Vince Coletta. But I finally, I finally found somebody else who posted about it publicly, so I can at least talk about that. So Jim Shooter, on his blog, related the story of one time when Stan and Vince were out at a restaurant in New York. They looked over and saw one of the more notorious mobsters in New York. And Stan said, hey, Vince, introduce me. Yep. And he did. Oh, yeah. He, that's one reason he worked so much. He did get fired off Thor after Kirby was gone, unfortunately, when it was disseminating the book. And uh, he demanded they put him on another book, and they did. I had not heard of that outside of the context of old pros talking smack about uh, the early days. So apparently it's much more public than I realized. I had always sort of wondered if it might just be part of anti-Italian uh, prejudice, uh, you know, just being like, oh, those Italians, they're all with the mob. But no, apparently this was a real thing with, with this one actual guy. Let's get into this. Okay, the very first panel after the splash page here, uh, it just has this moment where Foggy Nelson is saying to Karen Page after, you know, oh, yeah, I'll ask him to wait till I finish some notes. And don't change that crazy perfume you're wearing. And it's just like, uh, you know what? Nobody ever accused Foggy Nelson of being a smooth operator, I don't think. So then it turns out they're new clients. And they have credibly accused him of sexual harassment. <laughs> he So the new 
client apparently is the thing who crashes through the door and then tries to fix the door by just pushing it back together. Things there to hire him for a real estate contract, something or other with the Baxter building. And, you know, Foggy says, oh, that's Matt's bellywick. Uh, He'll be back in a little bit. Uh, Meanwhile, Daredevil goes and takes care of a car theft ring. So uh, and there is some really goofy, goofy stuff in here. So on page six, at one point, Daredevil thinks to himself, the sound of a truck starting coming towards me. I haven't enough room to dodge. Only one thing to do. And then in the very next panel, he has laid himself prone on the ground with a so-called tire that looks more like a scrunchie stretched around his feet and a and a full engine block lying on his torso to then use that as a slingshot at the truck. And somehow keep in mind, this was quicker than getting out of the way. Getting exactly. out of the way would have taken too long, but <laughs> creating a slingshot of an, with an engine block, that was the quick solution. Turns out that this whole car theft ring was a side gig of Electro. Certainly, we are constantly cataloging evidence that Stanley is writing the books and evidence that Stanley is not writing the books. Evidence that Stanley is writing the books, people defeating other people by wrapping tires around them. That is a major theme in uh, the Lee Kirby books. And here we go. Joe Orlando is also having up. I'm going to I'm going to wrap tires around everybody and that's how I'm going to defeat them. So that that seems to be coming from Lee. So anyway, uh, Electro, because his car um, theft ring has been broken up, decides that, oh, okay, well, the Fantastic Four are out of town. So I'm going to go up into the Baxter building and steal all their stuff. Then Daredevil shows up because, of course, Matt Murdock was just hired to go to the Baxter building and get in there. So they both happen to show up at the same time. They have a big, long fight. It's kind of dumb. And then eventually uh, Electro takes Daredevil's unconscious body and puts it into the Fantastic Four's ICBM and uh, sends him off into space. So at that point, <laughs> this is just the most ridiculous panels. Uh, so quick, so quickly is the rocket launched. So powerful are the mighty jets designed by Reed Richards that the gleaming sleek spacecraft reaches the edge of Earth's atmosphere in a matter of sheer seconds. Daredevil, when he wakes up, it's like those humming rocket engines, this sensation of lessening gravity mean only one thing. Electro has shut me in the FF space missile and launched it towards the stars. Uh, And then so he goes and finds the controls and says, imagine a blind man operating a spaceship. Not as impossible as it seems if that man can hear the levers move, feel the power needed, sense the direction of the flight. And then he says, I've done it. I've reversed the missile's course. And there's just this really goofy picture of his smiling face (laughs) as he does this. And this does feel like Stanley getting these pages back and going like, I don't know, could a blind man actually do all these things? <laughs> yeah, but it's like, I know I just co-created this character with Phil Everett and, you know, I have some responsibility for this character, but even I, Stanley, am not convinced by my own character that a blind man would actually be able to do these things. So there's so much real estate wasted in this issue explaining yeah. to us that, yes, a blind man could actually do these things. So then in the very next panel, he's like, by hearing the slight movement of the astro compass, I can gauge my direction perfectly. And by feeling the action of the radar scope, I can pinpoint my landing. And it's like, okay, all right, we get it. <laughs> it says, I'll bring the ship down in the middle of Central Park in New York, finding an open spot where I can hear no human heartbeats. And it's like, it's just constant obsession in this whole issue with, yes, he is blind, but here is how he is able to do everything that just a seeing, seeing hero, you would just not need all this real estate to explain these things. And it is 
unbearable. Uh, and then he goes and he steals a horse from a from a handsome cab and and then takes the horse galloping through traffic and leaping over cars, which I'm sure a handsome cab horse is trained <laughs> yeah. to do. This is really weird because he takes the horse and he goes to the Baxter building and you can see him outside the Baxter building. So Electra is in the Baxter building. I am Daredevil. I am dressed up as Daredevil. I want to go stop him. I will take this horse to the Baxter building. I will jump onto a flagpole, of course. And then... This is the most bizarre thing in the world. He changes back to Matt and he's on the street as Matt Murdock and Karen sees him and tries to wave hello and she can tell he's ignoring her. And then he changes back to Daredevil, hops onto a sightseeing helicopter, rides the sightseeing helicopter over to the Baxter building and then jumps off the Baxter building through a skylight. They've never had skylights before in to fight Electro. This is so strange. Why does he show up at the Baxter building in his terrible costume, and then change back into Matt Murdock. Eventually, the fight goes into Times Square. There's a whole thing in a movie theater. Yeah, so then finally, the thing comes back into the office at the end of the issue, and he's like, hey, have you looked at that contract yet? And Matt's like, oh, no, I haven't. And the Fantastic Four is like, oh, you incompetent lawyer, we'll go take our business elsewhere. Well, just like, you can't just skip over the end of the battle. So then Daredevil defeats Electro by dropping a curtain on him. Before he was defeated with a hose, it turns out he has a We know he has a weakness for hoses, but they didn't want to redo that. So this time he has a weakness for theater curtains. And uh, but then they follow that up with a hose. Yes. So he is (laughs) defeated by the theater curtain dropping on him. But then the police come up with hoses and they're like, we know you. You can't stand hoses. And they start hosing him down and then they take him off to jail. Well, I'm going to say I had pretty much given up on the issue by that point. So that that particular detail uh, didn't jump out at me since everything else was uh, not very good. So anyway, we're done with this. This is such a crushing disappointment after that promising first issue. And it doesn't get any better for the next two or three months, at least until Wally Wood shows up, at which point we get a rocky record from that point on. We know that Bill Everett was hired to do the first issue of Daredevil. We know that it arrived nine months late. So presumably he was fired. But who boy, if you just were going to publish Daredevil every nine months by Bill Everett, that would have been a fine publishing schedule as far as I'm concerned, because <laughs> they have not landed on their feet here. Joe Orlando, a fine penciler, and Joe Orlando. Another thing I really liked that Joe Orlando did was uh, he did a Phantom miniseries written by Peter David in the 80s that I really liked. Mm. So I can like Joe Orlando. But he you know, was also presumably rushing here because they were still behind deadline on this book. He does not get a chance to do great work. Coletta is unfortunately going to become a big part of the Marvel Universe from this point on. He does not do great work. And uh, Stanley does not do great work either. Nobody is doing great work in this issue. It is a weak issue and does not bode well for the continued Daredevil comic. Yep. On to Fantastic Four number 27. So Johnny Storm and Doctor Strange have been sharing a book. They've been sharing Strange Tales for more than a year. But they have never actually met in Strange Tales. Well, they are finally going to meet here. It says, Fantastic Four with special guest star, the sensational Doctor Strange. And we actually get to see him on a cover, which we rarely do in his own book. It says, The Search for a Submariner. This is the final issue, thank God, inked by George Bell. His final issue of Fantastic Four doesn't do such a terrible job in this issue. Begins with, Reed is using his thought projector helmet. And it turns out what he's thinking about is Sue Storm in a one-piece bathing suit. And he is projecting his thoughts of his girlfriend wearing a one-piece bathing suit and odd little slippers out of his head. And she is not happy about this. She's like, don't project your dirty thoughts of me. The thing puts on the thought helmet and he sees Dr. Doom throwing a sci-fi grenade at him and he's freaked out by that. Sue, 
to her credit, always in some ways the wisest member of the Fantastic Four is like, uh, I don't want anyone to know what I'm thinking about. I'm not going to wear your helmet. <laughs> of course, she's probably thinking about Namor. And Namor is thinking about her. We see him just walking around his headquarters, wearing his crown, wearing his big fur cape, wearing his medallion. And he... <laughs> his S medallion. S medallion. Last we saw Namor in Avengers, some of his men had come back to serve him again. But he just keeps making the same old mistakes. He says, all right, here are my decision, warriors of Atlantis. I plan to go to Earth's surface and return with Sue Storm as my intended bride. And they're like, uh, dude, that's why we all left you last time. They go, no, sire, you must not. These surface people are our enemies. It is unthinkable. And then they all desert him again. He says he left us no choice. We must desert him. We cannot be loyal to a monarch who would betray his royal heritage. He's like, oh, man, I have it again. Okay, well, might as well go get Sue now. So he goes over to the Baxter building. He starts beating up Thing while the Thing is doing one of his big workout equipment things. He knocks out Johnny with some gas. He tells Sue, I'm going to take you. Do you love me? Do you want to run off with me? She says no. And he's like, okay, I'll give you 24 hours to give me your answer. She already gave you your answer, dude. If you still say no after 24 hours, then I'll finally be done with you. So he knocks her out with gas and leaves and takes her away. Oh, right. I forgot to mention before. Sue goes off and says, I'm not going to let you read my thoughts. Ben says to him, the trouble with you, Reed, is you just don't understand females. That chick is nuts about you, and she ain't going to wait forever for you to pop the question. And then Reed says, she won't have to, Benjamin. I'm planning a little surprise for her. In fact, I plan to go out and shop for a ring later today. So Reed, this is a big step, big turning point in Fantastic Four history. Reed now intends to propose to Sue. But he then comes back. He comes back. He did indeed buy a diamond ring, but he finds out Sue has been kidnapped, and he freaks out, and he says... Screw you guys. I'm going to go fire by myself and I don't want you guys to have any part of it because I'm going to go kick some ass in a way that I don't want anyone else to see. So then Reed is using his super science equipment to find where Submariner is. It's only a matter of time until he finds him. So then Ben and Johnny are like, well, we need to find our own way to find the Submariner and we can't use science because Reed's got all the science reserved for himself. So we're going to use magic. And even though Johnny has never met Dr. Strange, even though they've been sharing a book for a long time, he goes ahead and flies around in the sky and writes Dr. Strange, urgent contact human torch. We then get Kirby trying to draw Dr. Strange Mm -hmm. and not doing a great job of it. You know, you have complained, you complain more than I do about how Kirby draws Spider-Man. He Mm -hmm. certainly is a little off model in his Spider-Man. He's even more off model on Dr. Strange, I'd say. Really? No, I, I thought that this was passable. It's passable. Whereas his Spider-Man is not. I find his Spider-Man passable and his Doctor Strange somewhat less than passable. You know, we see Doctor Strange. He's got huge shoulders, which is not right. He's looking into a crystal ball, which is (laughs) not exactly right. His Sanctum Sanctorum looks almost more like Doctor Doom's castle than it does like he's sitting in a huge throne. Of course, (laughs) it can't be a Kirby comic without the character having a big throne, which Doctor Strange does not have in his own comic. So then Doctor Strange turns into his ectoplasmic form goes and sees Ben and Johnny. They uh, they explain the situation. He's like, okay, I'll go find Submariner for you. He goes down to the bottom of the sea, finds the Submariner. Submariner has Sue in a little glass bulb. Now, at first I thought he had her in the glass bulb because he was in water and she was in air. And then eventually I realized, no, 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 they're both in air. Meanwhile, Reed is showing up and Reed is pissed. Reed is ready to kick some Submariner ass. And he is using his powers in all sorts of cool ways we've never seen his use powers before. He says, my entire body is subject to mental control. I can jab you away by making sharp lances of my outer skin while I easily free myself from your useless knot. 
And they, it is a really awesome fight. Uh, Kirby is using Mr. Fantastic to the utmost of his powers in ways he's never done it before. Meanwhile, Namor's very fickle men show up again and they're like, okay, we're back. We're going to give you another shot. And now, now notice that they're walking into the room, which we have determined is well, we think we've determined it's full of air. Although the Fantastic Four did all say they were taking pills that would allow them to breathe underwater for an hour. Well, Maybe? no, because later yeah. they flood the place, so they can't flood the place later if they've if it's all filled with water here. I think that Jack Kirby just played fast and loose with the whole, you know, what's water and who can breathe where kind of stuff, and that Stan was left to sort of explain how all this works. But sometimes he just doesn't even bother. When his guard shows back up again, yeah, they just walk right in. And Atlanteans, other than Namor, can't breathe air. So, yeah, what are you going to yeah, do? It's a problem. Dr. Strange finds Ben and Johnny again. He's like, dude, stuff is going down, man. I'm going to teleport you there so you can bail out Reed because Reed is in big trouble now. They show up. <laughs> All of Namor's men are shooting guns at Reed as he's bouncing around like a bouncy rubber ball trying to avoid them. Bouncing lad or bouncing boy. Who is that one in the uh, the Legion of Superheroes? Yes. So then Johnny, meanwhile, flies off, frees Sue. Sue is, to be fair, about to break th- out of her prison using her invisible force field, but she has not quite done it yet. Johnny goes and frees her. They then decide to flood the place, which was the first time I was sure that the place was not already flooded. We then cut back to Reed is still grappling with Submariner. Ben is now juggling all of Submariner's men, which is a great image on yes. page 18. Even with George Pelinking, you cannot deny the majesty of this page with Ben juggling Submariner's men. Things get more and more intense between Reed and Namor, but in fact, in the end, Looks like Namor has the upper hand. He's got a he's got a big gun. He's got all his men. But then they fire against Ben, and it does nothing because Sue is there with her force fields, and she is using her force fields to defuse the whole situation. And finally, she lays it on the line with Namor, and she is like, "I am telling you, I do not like you. I <laughs> like Reed. I want to marry Reed. I love Reed." Namor says to her, Richards is lucky that you still felt enough loyalty to him to interfere with my vengeance. And she says, no, Namor, not loyalty. My feeling was love. And he says, what are you saying? You can't love him. I've claimed you for myself. You must be mine. And she says, the one thing an imperial command cannot affect is a girl's heart. I'm sorry, Namor. Sorry if you misunderstood the sympathy I felt for you. Yes, even the affection I felt. Sorry if you thought it was love. But I realize now Reed is the only man for me. Nothing can ever change that. <laughs> Doctor Strange is like, uh oh boy, that's not good. That's going to result in an even bigger fight. I'm just going to teleport all the Fantastic Four out of there. He doesn't teleport them home. He just teleports them out to their submarine because we've got to go ahead and have them come out by submarine so we can show that it is an uncomfortable ride home because Reed does not believe Sue. Reed believes that Sue just said that in order to end the fight. Well, Ben <laughs> doesn't help matters because Ben is like, hey, you didn't just say what you said in order to prevent any more fighting, did you? And then Reed stops her will and her answer and says, no, don't answer that, Sue. I think I'd rather not know your answer. Then he drives home miserable. He's clearly not going to propose with his ring, even though he has finally heard the woman he loves say that she loves him and not anymore. He is more uncertain than ever. And that is the end of the issue. Yeah. So one thing that I want to say about this is I had some notes on the bottom of page 22 where, you know, you have the whole exchange about the one thing an Imperial command cannot affect is a girl's heart. Stanley gets a lot of guff and honestly from me as well 
about how dated lots of his writing of women is, uh, you know, how it is aged poorly. But I do have to say that he lets women stand up for themselves. And, you know, in this case, Namor is saying, I've claimed you for myself. You must be mine. And she's like, no, it's not the way things work, dude. <laughs> you know, that, that seems a little bit, uh, a little modern for the time. Um, oh, yeah. I think Stanley understood the concept of consent. I think that Stanley, <laughs> you know, was not. No, I mean, that's a real thing. I think a lot of comic books at the time didn't. I think a lot of comic books were like, you know, oh, sure, that's what you say, little lady. Like they were really doing that. Sue is given a chance to make her choice. She is frequently given a chance to make her choice. And Reed, it's implied, will respect that choice either way. And even in this case, once she definitively chooses him, he's like, was it enthusiastic consent? You know, did she really mean it? You know, she was in a situation where she really couldn't have said anything else. So I can't really take this as a full-throated yes, because she was in a situation where she did not have full consent to say whatever she wanted to say. And so I'd better lay off. I'd better back off. And I think that's really cool. Lee is going to get some guff from me today for how he writes Jan and the Avengers and a number of things this month. But I just want to um, give credit where credit is due, that this does feel like a little bit more modern, you know, in terms of how he's portraying women. So I just want to give praise where praise is appropriate. There is no Avengers tonight, correct? Oh, was that? That was last episode. Giant Man gave her this enthusiastic compliment about how professional and heroic she was and seems to be just really genuinely effusive about how great a superhero she was. And her response was, well, I'd rather you were more into my blushing beauty, but I guess if that's the only compliment I'll get. <laughs> it's like, dude, that seemed really genuine and sincere. And it was about how competent and good you were. And this stands in stark contrast to that. I say in my most recent book about how heroes should be stubborn, and she's still getting a chance to be stubborn. The Wasp is there. You know, she's getting a chance to go like, I want to do things on my terms. It's True. just that her terms are terrible. <laughs> so uh, another thing I wanted to point out is at one point when uh, Doctor Strange's ectoplasmic form is going through the uh, ocean, we find that supposedly Doctor Strange can read the minds of fish, which... Um, is not a power I think we ever see him use <laughs> past that. Yeah, I, I like Sue in this issue. I like how competent she is. I like how confident she is. I don't have, I, I think that Kirby did a perfectly competent job doing Doctor Strange, whereas I do not feel that way about when he does Spider-Man. Apparently you are a, um, you, you do not hold that view and uh, I respect that. Yes. I would love for Chickstone to have inked this issue as he will become the regular inker next issue, or of course Sinon, or of course Reinman. The battle between Reed and Namor is almost as epic as the battle between the Hulk and Thing last issue. And it would have been great to see it inked better, but still really good art in this issue. I'm loving it. You know, I feel like the story is definitely like this is a story we've seen before in terms of Namor forcing Sue to choose between him and Reed. It's feeling a little repetitive. It's, you know, the, they went back to the neighbor well a lot when the sh- series first began. We're seeing less of him now. He's been showing up more in other books, but there is a sense that, okay, it is time for a turning point, and this is that turning point, and we can't keep repeating this plot. I do miss Dorma and Krang. You know, it felt like Summerner's world had expanded, and now it's contracted again. But next time we are going to see him, he is going to be transitioning to having his own book. And he is going to have his supporting cast back, which I think it is time to have. I think we have solo Submariner has gone as far as he can go. 
That being said, I am generally not a fan of his solo series when it comes up. Just some stuff about it just doesn't seem to work for me. But that's that's just me. Okay, so we're now going to move on to Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor. And we have the return of both the Cobra and Mr. Hyde, who team up for the first time here, and they will remain a team at least sporadically for many years to come. Well, this starts out feeling like, wait, did I pick up an issue of Avengers? <laughs> There's the end yes. of an Avengers meeting, and then we see some stuff focusing on the other Avengers for a little bit, and it's like, wait, which issue am I reading here? So meanwhile, this is written by Happy Stan Lee, drawn by healthy Jack Kirby, inked by husky Chick Stone, lettered by hasty Art Simon. Yes, and beautifully, beautifully inked by Stone. Yes, an Avengers meeting is breaking up. They're all sort of having this awkward banter about wanting to have small talk, but of course they're all pledged not to pry into each other's private lives. So how do you do small talk? Hank and Jan, when they're leaving, Jan is like, oh, sure, all good for you. You get to ride your flying ants, but I have to use my own wings and get myself tired. And then they come outside and she's on a flying ant. And Hank is saying, I had him waiting outside the window, Jan. I wanted to surprise you. She says, some girls get flowers, candy, jewelry. I get a flying ant. And uh, she's not wrong. (laughs) Thor is going back to Dr. Blake's office. We see the Cobra, who once again is using those very Cobra-themed powers of flying darts out of his knuckles because Cobra. And then he's got a Cobra cable. Well, at least that looks sort of like a snake. So he's given Thor the business, and then the Cobra happens to climb into some uh, window, getting away from Thor. He then sees this scientist, the mad scientist in a lab. You know he's an evil scientist because he's got a goatee. He then goes ahead and swallows this formula, and we are reminded at this point that that is the character who turns into Mr. Hyde. Hyde and Cobra get into a fight, and then they... This is another example, uh, Mike, in the Incredible Hulk movie they would eventually make, where Zabo when he is a mad scientist, has a mustache and beard, and then he becomes Mr. Hyde, and he does not. So the implication is that when his face thickened, it thickened to the extent that it swallowed up the mustache and beard to a certain extent, or something like that. What, what, what was this about in, about Hulk? What, what? In, in, the, in the movie The Incredible Hulk with Ed Norton, Ed uh-huh. Norton has sort of a scraggly beard and mustache, uh, and okay. then he becomes the Hulk, and he does not. Yes, yes. Uh, well, um, uh, gamma radiation um, will go ahead and fry all your hair off immediately. Ah, no, that's, okay. that's, you, you just weren't using your head. Cobra and Hyde, just like, just like heroes in the Marvel Universe, have a fight for two or three pages and then realize that they are allies and should team up. So they both realize, hey, we both hate Thor. Well, let's hate Thor together. Thor goes back to his office, but then Jane wants to make him jealous to try to get him to make a move. So she tells him that he she's going on a date tonight, so she needs off early from work. So this is not the last time we're going to see this week a woman driving a man away from her by contriving dates to go on just to make him jealous. And in both cases, hey, right. the man is then convinced that, oh, that means you don't love me. And then she thinks if he says, I was right. He really doesn't care if I meant anything to him. He'd be angry, jealous, but he's not. 
my life means nothing to him. So we talked about how Lee, somewhat progressive in other things, but certainly when it comes to girls liking guys to be angry, that's not cool. And that comes up a lot. Like, oh, I wish he was angrier with me. I wish he was more jealous of me. And then girls contriving fake relationships in order to get the guys to be jealous of them. This is not healthy. This is not a healthy way to portray relationships. And it happens twice this month, which again implies that Lee is really writing the books because, you know, or I don't know, you could read that either way. You could go like, well, surely this is the same person writing the books if this happens twice in different books this month, penciled by different people. Or you could be like, well, clearly it's not being written by the same person because he wouldn't do it twice in one month. But uh, you could read that either way. They were doing a lot of work. But but nothing is a worse example that we've seen so far as when uh, Dory Evans was like, oh, well, if, if I knew what a temper you had, I wouldn't have done that trick of pretending to date another guy. <laughs> and so now I'll stick with you now that I know what a temper you've got. I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> creepy. Meanwhile, Mr. Hyde has a really fantastic invention where it's like, dude, this, <laughs> why are you criming? You could go ahead and make a fortune off of this thing. But he's got some sort of a special camera that if you take a picture of somebody or something, it can then run time backwards from that point and see what happened earlier. So they're able to use this on Thor. They uh, draw Thor out in a an inconsequential robbery, uh, but they do that so that they can get him on this camera so they can go and trace him back to where it came from. Weird panel on page 10, panel in the bottom left where the cobra is bending around backwards for absolutely no reason, <laughs> just just to be cobra-y, <laughs> yeah. which is, I mean, better than his weaponry, which is not at all cobra-y. So he uses this thing on it, and they're able to follow him back through time to that office that he flew into. So not only would you think mm, people would notice he's always going into this one office window, but then that office window actually has painted on it Dr. Don Blake, office hours, such and such. It's like, this is the exterior window on a tall New York City building. Why do you have the office hours stenciled on this thing? They then figure out, oh, this Dr. Blake must have some connection to Thor, so let's go get him. So they go and get him. Meanwhile, Jane is off doing her other date, and then she just realizes her, her heart isn't in it. She says, would you mind taking me back, Paul? I'm sorry, but I seem to have developed a splitting headache. And she thinks, perhaps I'm a fool, but I'd rather work in the office with Dr. Blake than go on the most romantic nightclub with anyone else. So she goes back to the office after, you know, to apologize to Blake, but then Hyde and Cobra are there. They grab her. Blake promises to summon Thor uh, if they'll let her go. And then he says, oh, yeah, he's going to come in that window in just a moment. Uh, Hyde is holding on to his walking stick. Somehow he's able to still change into Thor, even though he's not the one that tapped the stick and it's really a little bit weird i mean they make sure to show they're in the same panel uh but no, anyway so weird. he's just he's just able to say hey i came in through the window and you didn't notice <laughs> like wait what we were watching so closely thor dispatches with the two villains mr hyde has some other high tech something or other oh it's some kind of magnet that's supposed to draw mjolnir towards him i think right yeah no it's an ultra wave transmitter sorry which i concealed beneath my cloak yeah and it will attract metal in the hammer so basically it's magnets they end up in an industrial trade show uh, where they're showing off heavy machinery. So, okay, you know, this is almost sort of Steve Ditko-ish, uh, although they do not use that for choreographing the fight nearly as much as Ditko would do. Cobra figures out that he can use one of the machines to pick up the hammer because that's not a person. Then we just leave it on a cliffhanger. 
where Thor is still fighting these two and his hammer has just been taken away and he only has seconds left before he turns back into Dr. Blake. Not great. Hyde and Cobra are both pretty lame villains. They're not much better together. Um, you know, more of the same recycled, rehashed soap opera stuff of, oh, I'll make him jealous. And, you know, then it doesn't work out the way the way they planned. There's not much here. There was a good comic should be good article about this issue and about the whole history of like, can robots lift Thor's hammer? And, you know, of course, in Avengers Age of Ultron, Vision lifts Thor's hammer. And then later they're like, wait, was that because he was a robot or because he was worthy? And then, you know, Iron Man has a line like, if you put the hammer down in an elevator and hit up on the elevator, the hammer will go up. It's not because the elevator is worthy. So then he's saying that, no, the vision is worthy. And they're like, going, no, 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 he was able to do it because he's worthy. Well, in this case, clearly, this industrial machinery that the Cobra is operating isn't worthy, but it is able to lift the hammer. So that is implying Brian Cronin was trying to figure out, could Ultron lift the hammer? And ultimately, Brian Cronin concluded Ultron could lift the hammer, but it's not clear. This issue, you know, we've had last issue, Thor was fighting Surger. He was fighting a frost giant. He was fighting, you know, the real big Asgardian menaces he should be fighting. And it's so disappointing now to have him fighting Cobra and Mr. Hyde, which are just such lame earthbound villains. And Thor just, it just never works. Thor should be fighting Asgardians. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, these are like Iron Man level villains, uh, maybe Giant Man level villains. Maybe they're a little above Giant Man. Giant Man has really low standards, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's, not, let's not go crazy here, Steve. <laughs> okay so uh meanwhile we'll move on to uh tales of asgard and i have to say this is probably one of my least exciting tales of asgard stories that we've gotten to yet you know it doesn't seem to have really the same kind of grandeur that uh we've been getting out of them so far but no it doesn't uh, and it doesn't have a beginning middle, and end it just has a beginning and then just ends five pages you know they've never really had to deal with this issue before of like uh five pages isn't enough to tell a story but in this case it certainly is not Right. So it starts out with uh, King of the Storm Giants, King Brimmer, scheming with Nedra. What is her deal? I forget. Anyway, but they're both scheming about taking down Asgard. I will point out that on the second page of Tales of Asgard here, the first panel, this looks, this has a lot of the hallmarks of a lot of Coletta's worst habits, even though yeah. this isn't Coletta. The whole thing about the uh, the big, you know, top, Pony, top knot ponytail that this uh, storm giant king has is the line is way too thick on one side. Just something Coletta will do. It'll just have a super thick line somewhere and then these little scratchy lines everywhere else. Uh, and it goes ahead and creates some really awkward tangents right where his hair meets his thumb meets her muff. It sort of really flattens the panel and cause it almost looks like he's holding a snowball in his hand, but actually that is the white fur on her sleeve. There is a lot any good anchor could have done to that panel to make it work better. But you should say who the anchor is. The anchor is oh, yeah. George Bell, my least yes. favorite. I've come to dislike George Bell just as much as I dislike Coletta. So you're you're preaching to the choir here. Essentially, these two come up with a uh, plan that they're going to have this little fairy, I guess. Uh, what would you call this thing? A little elf or fairy or something like that, that can turn into, uh, that, you know, is essentially one of the little creatures that, uh, among other things can go unnoticed everywhere. So they're like, okay, yeah, you go in and you infiltrate Asgard because Heimdall won't be able to see you. 
And Heimdall doesn't see him. He makes it into Asgard. But Heimdall's just like, something's not right. I don't know what it is, but there's something going on. And then they eventually capture this little fairy that has been sent in. And Heimdall comes to prostrate himself before Odin to ask for forgiveness for failing. And Odin's like, dude, you didn't fail. You knew something was up. And the end. <laughs> so it's my, it's my least favorite Tales of Asgard yet. Um, Netra, is, Netra and Primer get off scot-free. Nobody ever figures out that they were the ones who sent the Vanna, it's called, sent the little fairy. And uh, they never act on any sort of plan. They never get caught. The whole issue becomes, should Heimdall get in trouble for letting the little fairy slip through? And the answer is no. That's it. Uh, and uh, when I say it's my least favorite Tales of Asgard so far, I have enjoyed all the Tales of Asgard so far. And this yes. one just seems much more mediocre than what we've been getting in this feature so far. And yeah, I mean, you're going to have your duds every now and then. That's fine. All right, let's go into Strange Tales. Strange Tales number 121. So we have, it's a starring the Sensational Human Torch, co-starring the mystical Doctor Strange. And they are given pretty much equal billing on this cover. We have, you know, a slightly bigger drawing of what's going to happen in the Human Torch story, and then a slightly smaller drawing of what's going to happen in the Doctor Strange story, featuring actually Doctor Strange pictured here on the cover. We see Human Torch battling Plant Man and Doctor Strange battling Baron Mordo. Which of those comics would you rather read? Let's find <laughs> out. So we get to a typical, terrible Human Torch story, Prisoner of the Plant Man, written in the sensational style of Stanley, drawn in the marvelous manner of Dick Ayers. A quick review of what happened in the previous Plant Man issue. We then see the Plant Man, who, as you recall, got away last time, has made himself an even better plant ray to make plants come alive even better than he did before. We cut to Johnny Storm sleeping in his house when a tree tiptoes in through his open door, carrying a bucket of water. And then the tree carrying the bucket of water throws the bucket of water at him. And then Plant Man jumps in the window and it's like, ah, ha, ha, I've thrown a bucket of water at you. Now you can't become Human Torch. And now I want to commit crimes. So I will lock you. Let me point out something about the whole sequence with the tree coming in is even sillier. Because the tree, a tree comes in through the window and then it unlatches the door to let the other tree come in with the bucket of water. And then it splashes him. And then Plant Man just comes in that same window where the original plant had had stuck through. And it's just like, couldn't you have just come in carrying a bucket of water in this case? It just makes no sense. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. That's utterly ridiculous. So then Plant Man is like, you're soffing wet. You can't do anything. I'm going to lock you in your closet because your closet has a little lock on it to lock the closet closed from the outside. And then I'm going to break your phone in case you do get out and try to call the police. Now, it's never been implied before that Johnny lives any place that would be across the street from a fancy hotel. He has seemed to live on a nice tree-lined suburban street in the past. But Plant Man goes across the street to rob a fancy hotel. Uh, it's using his plant gun, using his little walking trees he has now to do it. Sure enough, Johnny gets out too late to stop him. Dory is there. Dory's like, uh, Batman hates my dad, remember? So I'm worried about that. And he's like, oh, so, yeah, so, totally. So meanwhile, they make no effort to explain how those trees were able to open that safe on <laughs> no. page five. It's just like, oh, there are some living trees. And so safe breaking. You know, it's just like, <laughs> I was just looking at that. I was like, come on. I mean, try. <laughs> we all forgot right. to set a timer on this, but I'm going to just quickly sum it all up. Yes. But Plant Man is still going around. He's got living trees. He demands that Johnny Storm fight him at the Botanical Garden. He pelts Johnny Storm with wet acorns so that Johnny Storm's flame goes out. All Johnny Storm is able to do is send up a bunch of flaming fours in the sky to call for help. 
plant man then admits that was one thing he didn't think of. He's pretty much willing to feed, but he said, aha, I sent living trees to go attack Dory Evans. And he says, well, I sent the thing to go attack your living trees that you sent to attack Dory Evans. And plant man says, oh, in that case, I give up. I'm going to turn myself into the cops. And he does so. These endings are always fairly lame, but for some reason, this one seemed particularly lame to me. Doris says, Johnny. And he says, hi, Doris. Didn't think I'd forget our date, did you? And she says, of course not. I'm so proud of you. And Johnny, what's in that package you've brought me? He says, just some candy, Dory. Why? And she says, for a second, I thought it might be a plant. I'm like, okay, that's, for some reason, that feels lamer than the usual. Like, oh, you know, did I hope you didn't give me an aquarium. I just bought the eel. But this feels even lamer than that somehow. A flower, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If it was a flower, yes, that would totally yeah. make sense. If he'd brought her right. if he'd brought her flowers and she's like, I don't want to see anything more of plants, that would have been a perfectly fine ending, Stanley. Right. Um, so I will point out that the last panel on page six is one of the worst pictures of the thing that we have seen so far. It really and is. Ayers just seem to make no effort in terms of trying to determine what the thing's face looked like. If anything, he looks kind of like the thing in in the early 2000s movies in the rubber suit. Yes. Yes. Michael <laughs> Chiklis. Yes. But even in the rest of the issue, he isn't so bad. It's just that one yeah. drawing where his stones are square. So he looks like a tiled roof and his face is like way too human. That's just covered in, in orange rocks. And it's very creepy and weird and uncool. Terrible drawing of... The thing, Dick Ayers, worse than your usual drums of the thing. Uh, and then I will point out, you mentioned this a moment ago, but I'll just reiterate that the uh, plant man smothers Johnny Flame with uh, Johnny Flame, smothers Johnny Blaze, Johnny Blaze, dude, <laughs> <laughs> smothers Johnny Storm with his moist nuts. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know. Am I allowed to say that on a family friendly podcast here? I don't see any problem with it unless, oh my God, what were you thinking? <laughs> Where was your mind? Too many of them covered with dew, so moist, putting out my flame. Yes. <laughs> On to a much better story here. A much better story, Doctor Strange, Witchcraft in the Wax Museum. Better than the Human Torch story, but not one of the all-time great Doctor Strange stories. True. I'll just quickly sum up. Doctor Strange sitting around at home looking at his globe to try to figure out if there's any threats. He gets a call on the phone. This is not the first time he has been summoned into a trap by a phone call. He says, oh, got to call on the phone, got to go, sends his ectoplasmic self, finds out that it's just a machine that has called him, realizes it was all a tramp. Sure enough, comes home. His body is gone. Mordo gloats, says, I'm still in your body. You're never going to get it back. He is flying around the world in his ectoplasmic self, trying to find his body. Uh, he gets in a pretty cool fight in the air with three other ectoplasmic goons that Mordo has sent after him. He then is flying through cool deco dimensions. But are they uh, hired goons? I think they're hired goons. I think these, <laughs> one can safely say these goons have been hired. Doctor Strange finds where Mordo had put his body, but now his body is left, but he's able to do something sort of similar to the Mr. Hyde device where he's able to shine his light on it and see what's happened previously in that spot. Finds that his body has been set up in a wax museum. He can't get to his body, even though he's found it. Mordo is there. Mordo is gloating. This is one of the weaker aspects of this issue is Mordo seems utterly baffled that Strange would then seize control of one of the other wax statues and attack him using it. Like, that seems like the sort of thing Strange would be able to do. That sort of seems like something you left yourself wide open for, Baron Mordo. But Mordo is absolutely baffled. He says, what? Who? 
No, it is impossible. There cannot be another on Earth whose magic is powerful enough to bring life to a waxen figure. Like, well, no, it's Dr. Strange, the very guy you were just talking to. Like, don't you think it was probably him who's doing this? He is forced to go ahead and have the ectoplasmic fight he didn't want to have. He thinks that he destroys Dr. Strange, but he had just destroyed an image of Dr. Strange. Dr. Strange, at this point, has won the day. He has his body and his ectoplasmic self. He has separated Mordo from his own body. And instead of saying, I will now kill you, which would probably be for the best because Mordo has been seen as being rather incorrigible, he said, I'm just going to keep you separated from your body for 23 hours because I know that that sucks for you. And I know that you would really, that you're worried it's going to be 24 hours, which would defeat you utterly. But I'm not going to do that. Just 23 hours, then I'm going to let you go. And then he goes home. So that is the end of this issue of Doctor Strange. Finding Mordo is always, you know, sort of the most autopilot that Doctor Strange gets. But we still have interesting twists and turns. We have beautiful art of Doctor Strange fighting the ectoplasmic goons and some other fine, thicko, multidimensional work. And it is cool when Strange takes over the wax figure statue and attacks Mordo. It's it's nicely drawn by Dicko, of course. So some observations for me. One, you just earlier in this very episode were saying were complaining that Kirby had Doctor Strange sitting on a throne, and we've never seen that throne before. Uh, we see it in this issue. Yeah, right here. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of it looks less throne like than when Kirby drew it. Kirby, Kirby. Oh, I mean, Kirby's gonna throne. But what I'm saying is, uh, seeing this and seeing that that thing, it's just like that's Kirby's interpretation of this. I I, I will give Kirby a pass on that one. Okay. So uh, you don't have to, but I will. Then, just as we've been talking about how much Ditko likes giving himself these set pieces and then working with them in the fight scenes, he goes and sets this whole thing up in a wax museum and then just doesn't really take it take much advantage of it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I agree. You, you just see that one figure who comes to life. You may glance at a couple of others. Yes, you see a few in the background on the top of page six. And then other than that, you only see that one character who comes to life and you don't really see any of the other figures. Although I do really like the artistic rendition on page eight of Doctor Strange getting blasted by Mordo's power into a corner. Uh, and yeah. so there are two of those where he's getting hit and then he's, you know, weakening. Uh, and those are really, really well done. So, yeah, you're right. This is not the strongest Doctor Strange issue. It's not the strongest Ditko uh, issue, even when you consider Ditko's usual strengths and weaknesses. But it is uh, better than the previous story. <laughs> yes. As I was flipping through, I was suddenly reading this ad. Boys, men, I'll help you master Yuba Waza. Yuba Waza, the secret, amazing, easy art of self-defense. And it shows this <laughs> this little Japanese woman and it says, I weigh only 98 pounds, yet I can paralyze a 200-pound attacker with just a finger because I know Yuba Waza, says Yoshi Imanani, pretty Japanese wife of N.J. Fleming. <laughs> okay. Well there, is there, well, there you have it. That's an endorsement. So uh, here, Tales of Suspense. This one intro. I'm going to set a clock on. Okay. We've got please. two books left. We've been going for a long time. Yes. Your clock starts now. Iron Man, uh, there's Return of the Mandarin. There's a little blurb that says, wait till you see Iron Man's new protective head mask. Old Bullethead seems to change his iron masks as often as a glamour girl changes her hairdos. But this one's a doozy. So earlier I had said that I think the pointy things on his mask were never supposed to be pointy. So that is finally corrected here by just doing a new updated mask. I like his new eye holes. He's got his eye holes were ludicrously big uh, for the last several issues, but he's got these sleeker 
rounded, more sort of sinister looking eye holes now, which I like. Yeah. And he's, and he's got, got rivets. Rivets. <laughs> yes. Rivets. Rivets. Um, and so on the bottom of page two, there's this one thing where he takes the mask off. He says, Whew, it's a relief to get out of this stuffy iron mask. And I'm like, oh, we really feel that these days. <laughs> you know? Oh, good. I get to take off my mask. He is told by Pepper that, of course, once again, there is something he needs to do in D.C. because of all the stuff going on down there. Then she's like, oh, you need to take me down there to go and take notes, right? And he's like, eh, nope, I'm not going to. And then uh, Happy's like, hey, you need me to drive you down there, right? And he's like, mm, nope. And he just walks out. So <laughs> the army is letting him know that apparently some stuff uh, Stark has been selling the army is not working right in Vietnam. That there are these missiles of some sort that are not actually doing what they're supposed to do. And they're like, are you making a shoddy product? He's like, I'll go and figure it out. This was this was a big recurring theme for a while in Marvel Comics yes. of missile tests going awry, which yes. was a massive theme that we have yes. encountered like 10 times so far. And this is for the first time in a while we have missile tests going awry. And but it's bizarre because they he figures out like, oh, they're going awry over the Mandarin's palace. And it's like, well, wait, if you're launching missiles from presumably within Vietnam at targets in Vietnam, why are they passing over Western China where the Mandarin's palace is? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, all those Asian countries are so close together. Yes. To paraphrase our New York-based grandmother when she was talking about Atlanta and Fort Smith, Arkansas, where my dad's from. Meanwhile, uh, so at this point, we still are under the impression that his jets can't do too much. So he hitches a ride on a missile. And so he magnetized himself to the side of the missile. Okay, I'll buy that. But then later, when he gets to where he's going and he's captured by these, you know, Asian gorillas, G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A-S, not G-O-R-R, right. Um, he's got his attache case that they're trying to open. And I'm like, where was your attache case? <laughs> that, was, that was not with you. I think he went out and bought one in Hanoi when he landed. <laughs> uh, I think so. So Tony Stark <laughs> drives to wherever the Mandarin is. Once again, China's not that big. He can get there pretty quickly. Turns himself into Iron Man, goes in and fights him. Again, the Mandarin. So the Mandarin's using his rings, which is cool. They've got specific powers. That works well. Uh, he do they, like though? Like, what? Have we ever found out what the 10 powers are of his 10 rings? Eventually they do. By the time we were reading comics in the 80s. Oh, no, that's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was like what it was all about when I was a kid. Like, yeah. Mandarin, here is 10 rings. Here's the powers of the 10 rings. They have never gotten to 10 at this point in the two no. appearances we've had of the Mandarin. They occasionally will go like, oh, here's a ring and it has a power, but they'll never go like, here's my 10 rings and their 10 powers. No, but some of them are being established now. So his black light ring uh, is one that I remember him using a lot in the 80s, and that's introduced here. Yeah. But then, of course, the Mandarin uses karate to attack Iron Man because... You know, karate, kung fu, Japan, China, whatever. So, um, all the same thing. Uh, right. So Mandarin then pulls out a big old, actually what looks more like a Middle Eastern scimitar to uh, try to have a sword fight with Iron Man for, you know, reasons. Is able to capture him with sort of these weird bolo ball things. And then he is going to, he has some kind of dynamos descend from the ceiling that is going to somehow destroy him. And he has these thoughts about, oh, last thing that Pepper and Happy will have heard from me when I die is me being, you know, kind of a dick to them. And uh, so that's where we sort of leave it. And, you know, we'll find out more about the story later. It's a cliffhanger. It's yes. a cliffhanger. He's about to be killed. We don't know how it's going to end. It's yep. a end of a two-parter. So you got that done in just about five minutes. That was perfect. Yes, <laughs> this is... 
not a well-penciled and inked issue by Heck. You know, it's nice to have the Mandarin. The Mandarin is a substantial Iron Man villain, and he is, you know, being substantial here. It is really weird that they are not coming clean with what all of his rings do, but it is good to see a big knockdown dragout battle of Iron Man fighting someone who is a not lame villain. All sorts of problems with the issue in terms of things that just don't make sense. I believe that's it. Let's go ahead and move on to Tales of the Watcher, and I'll finish this thing off. Essentially, this story is uh, exploring some of the stuff that was set up about the Watcher's background in the previous issue. So he is sort of feeling, really, his impotence that their vow puts upon him, that he has all his power and can't do anything about it. And he thinks back to one of the earlier things that happened after they all, you know, basically said, we're going to create what later in Star Trek will be called the Prime Directive, and we will violate it just as much as they violated in Star (laughs) Trek. (laughs) But he is remembering one of the earlier times with this where there is a civilization. They eject the radioactive waste out into space. He then sees that it's about to hit another civilized planet and destroy that whole civilization. And he's like, I must do something. This is a stupid vow. I, I shouldn't keep this. This is more important. And then it turns out that there was some other planet that had gotten knocked off course that was about to collide with the planet with the civilization on it. And it and the radiation cloud or whatever it is end up somehow destroying each other and neutralizing everything. So then that saves the the planet. And so the watcher realizes that if I'd gotten rid of that nuclear thing, then that other planet would have collided with this planet. And that's something I guess I couldn't have done something about. So I actually was right. Is actually sometimes doing nothing is actually the right thing to do, even if it doesn't look like it. Yeah, and it's interesting. We got the watcher really pissed. He's like, yeah, he's really angry at the beginning of the story. Like, oh, I can't believe I have to do this stupid thing. Has he been named Utah yet, by the way? No, I, I think it's Uatu. Oh, is it? Oh, is it Uatu? Yeah, okay. I, when we were kids, we called him Utah, but we had transposed in our heads the T and the A. Okay. It's Uatu. Um, no, they have not named him. Uh, so one of the things this reminds me of is, and this is always a problematic thing when you say it, but you know, I've always heard of a Chinese proverb. And of course, whenever you hear Chinese proverb, you're like, is it really a Chinese proverb or is it something somebody made up and said it's a Chinese proverb? So with that caveat in mind, there is a, um, and maybe not a proverb, but a story about some kind of farmer who, you know, what is it? Uh, uh, you know, it basically keeps on having something good happen to him. And everybody's like, oh, wow, congratulations. This is a great blessing. And he says, perhaps. And then it turns out that that great blessing ends up causing some great tragedy. And they come up and say, oh, my goodness, you've been cursed. Why? Why? And he just says, perhaps. And it just keeps on going back and forth. And this reminds me a little bit of that. You know, things might look bad, but maybe that's actually working out for the best. Yeah. And, I like this story um, a lot. I think yeah. this is, it's hard to believe that they're actually sustaining a series about Uatu, I guess is his name, the Watcher. But yeah, no, this is the second issue we've had of actually telling stories about Uatu. And I think it's a nice little parable. I think it's a nice little story. All right. So Tales to Astonish. At last, Giant Man has learned to use his great power of growth to its best advantage. Now see how he comes with the coming of the magician. And we see, even on the cover, the magician has the wasp held captive and Giant Man has to save her. Of course, we begin with, again, this this book has always been bizarrely focused on how Giant Man slash Ant-Man gets around town. 
And once again, we've got this bizarre skyhook thing. Gigantic ring now lowers down and picks him up and flings him up into his building. And it is just the strangest thing. He then, for the second time this month, has a engagement ring. For the second time this month, we have a hero who has decided to propose to the heroine. And he gets really tiny so he can examine the diamond just to make sure it's a good one. So then the wasp comes in, and just as he is about to say, hey, I want to propose to you, I want to marry you, she says, hey, I'm going to go out on a date with a rich guy. And of course, she is just trying to make him jealous, but he assumes, oh, this means she doesn't really love me. And then when he says, okay, fine then, then she assumes, oh, that means he doesn't really love me, because otherwise he would get angry, which is what all women want men to get. So we have more soap operatics, so similar, sort of combining the situations in the Fantastic Four comic, and the Thor comic. Again, you could either see this as evidence of surely these must be written by the same man, or you could see this as evidence that surely they must not be written by the same man, because why would he repeat the same stories? Issue after issue after issue, all coming out the same month. The ants suddenly start telling Hank Pym, uh, dude, magician, there's a magician out there. We're showing you pictures of him. And he's like, why are the ants telling me about this magician? And then he says, oh, it turns out this magician, huge coincidence alert, is performing for the dude who Jan is on a date with right now. And the ants are telling me he's evil. So I'd better go crash Jan's date because I now know that she's about to be entertained by an evil magician. He shrinks down. <laughs> he is once again flying around in his blue cellophane chariot pulled by two harnessed flying ants, which is the second bizarre way of getting around town we've gotten to in this issue already on page four. Jan is on her date with this guy in this sort of awesome white dinner jacket. His name is Sterling Stuyvesant, which is a great New York blue blood name. He stands up on the table to tell everybody he's hired a magician who's going to entertain everybody. The magician is entertaining everybody. And yet for the second time this month again, he conjures up a giant theatrical curtain and drops it on everybody. And we all know that is the one thing that no one can defeat. And I do so have to say that his ma magic tricks that he pulls are just the worst, most stereotypical, <laughs> rote, uncreative magic tricks ever. Even doing the whole quarter behind the ear thing. <laughs> yes. not, dude, that's a grandpa <laughs> trick. That's not a... <laughs> Okay, go on. <laughs> True. So then he goes ahead and starts taking everybody's wallets. But then the wasp, oh, there's a superheroine in there. She can stop him. Well, of course not. He's like, oh, just in case the wasp attacks me, I have a special way of taking you captive. He takes her captive, snaps her up inside his wand, and disappears with her. Giant Man shows up, says like, uh, dude, I think you were on a date with my girlfriend, and you lost her to your hired help. Says, you're one smart cookie, aren't you? He's not happy with Sterling Syveson. He thinks, I'm being unfair to Stuyvesant. This isn't his fault. I'm just jealous due to Jan. So then he is once again flying across town on his blue cellophane chariot. He figures out if I throw a fancy gala on a yacht, the magician won't be able to help himself and will insist on attacking it. So he throws a fake gala on a yacht. He rents a huge yacht. He makes little cutout silhouettes of people to put up in the windows of the yacht and plays music as if there's a big party going on. Which reminds me of an episode of the Bloodhound Gang on yes. TV. Okay, you remember that too. Okay. Yes, it totally reminded me of that episode of the Bloodhound Gang. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> it totally did. He says, aha, there's no party going on. It's just me. I'm going to fight you, magician. They fight. Uh, the magician turns out the way he get, he attacks everybody is he's got He's got a gigantic blimp 
his gigantic blimp is painted blue. So when you have a blimp that's painted blue against a blue sky, no one will be able to see it. So that's how he's able to come and go. He climbs up on this couple's boat. He throws a rope around the blimp. He snags it. He climbs up there. He frees Jan. Giant man is fighting the magician. Jan flies up. She saves the day for once. She flies up and goes ahead and releases all the air out of the balloon, releases all the helium out of the balloon. She saves the day, but they do say in the speech balloon, I opened the air release valve as Hank ordered. It's like, (laughs) come on. She just did the thing. That's why do you have to? Anyway. (laughs) Yes. So then the whole thing crashes. And then she suddenly realizes like, oh, yeah, I crashed a blimp and my boyfriend was inside it. And he's dead now. And now she feels terrible. Bizarrely, the magician, he lands in the water. He gets fished out by the police. He gets taken off to jail. She's like, oh, no, I." she's on a buoy. And she's like, oh, I feel terrible that I killed Hank. But then Hank, it turns out, is flying around on a paper airplane. So bizarre way of getting around number three. He yes. flies up on a paper airplane, which he can somehow direct, I guess. He says, while we were falling, I folded a paper airplane, took a reducing capsule, and glided to safety free as the breeze. So then they start making out on the buoy. The end. Yeah. Um, So this was an issue that was published. And (laughs) (laughs) so, okay, I do have a few thoughts. One, this is the, I think, the first costume update for the Wasp that we've ever gotten. Now, this this will go on to be one of her things, that she is into fashion, she's into design, so she will end up redesigning her own costume at least every few months. Basically, if they come up with a really good one, she'll keep it for several months. But then other than that, she might just be in another costume each epi- each issue. I think, yes. I think that's significant. She comes up to him and says, hi, Hank, like my new hairdo and headpiece. One thing that this made me think of about the, you know, oh, I've got, already got the ring and I'm going to propose. And then, oh, no, she's she's not into it. That happened in Fantastic Four and uh, Tales to Astonish. It actually reminds me of proposing to my wife, Amy. <laughs> she went away for a week to one of her college friends wedding. While she was gone, I was there at home for a week and I was like, why why do, would I want to do this anymore? Why am I not committing? This sucks. I really just work better as a couple with her. I need to propose. I was ready to really sort of get serious about how am I going to go and propose? And she comes back from this wedding and she was just like, oh my God, that thing was a disaster. I just, <laughs> oh man, I just can't even think about weddings. Oh man, this is just terrible. <laughs> and, and indeed the, the marriage fell apart in like two months. So <laughs> it was, it was not her imagination, but um, yeah, that put off proposing to her for probably like over a year. <laughs> what? Seriously? Are you a Silver Age Marvel Comics character? Who is I, so easily put off of proposing? This is what I'm saying, Matt. <laughs> I'm saying that I identify with both of these stories. <laughs> yeah. The moment of me being like, that's it. I've got the I've got my courage up. I'm gonna do it, had sort of passed. And then, you know, I just sort of coasted along for another little while. So I <laughs> I so our father famously proposed to our mother after he had known her for a month. And I waited a little bit longer, but not that much longer. <laughs> I, I started dating my wife in February of the year 2001 and then proposed in December of the year 2001. So um, I did not wait long, but uh, nothing could have held me back. Ah, yes. Well, you are a wiser man than me when it comes to love, but I did get wise eventually. <laughs> yes, wise up. <laughs> Better late than never. Yeah. All right. So I wait. We never did cover the wasp tells a tale, and we won't cover the wasp tells a tale. Suffice it to say, Jan tells Hank a science fiction tale, and then sort of teases him for a while about not telling him the ending, and then does. 
And he says, brother, I'll take battling a supervillain anytime to matching wits with a gorgeous female. The end. So that was uh, June of 1964, or at least cover date, June 1964. So that means they would have hit the stands in what, March? Yeah, probably March 1964. Beatlemania was underway at this point, wasn't it? Yes. Beatlemania has not made it into the Marvel Comics yet, but it will. (laughs) We will see a little bit of Beatlemania. Oh, yeah. We will get to see the thing in a Beatles wig. We'll get to see the Beatles themselves, too. That's true. But that is a tale for another day. This month, not the strongest month of Marvel Comics. Mysterio is great. That was by far the highlight of the month. It was nice to see a big knockdown drag out fight between Reed and Namor. But, you know, a a serviceable, passable month of Marvel Comics. It may be more than two weeks before we have our next episode. We'll see. We're we're traveling a lot. It's August. We're men about town (laughs) gallivanting about. Yeah, I'm traveling for the next like three weeks. A wedding, a funeral, all sorts of stuff that's going on that's going to keep me out of town. Once again, this is Steve from the future. No, you won't be leaving town just yet. I would just wish to say goodbye, good luck, and uh, stay safe out there. Okay, stay safe, everybody. We will see you soon. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.